Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for joining us today on the New Books Network in Fantasy and Adventure. My September interview is with Premi Muhammad. We discuss her debut speculative fiction novel, Beneath the Rising. Here's my review. Beneath the Rising is simultaneously a far-flung horror story and an exploration of an intimate relationship. At the heart of this novel, full of threatening monsters and ancient terrors, is the accommodation one makes with the exploitation of others when it serves a higher goal. Scientist and child prodigy Joanna, Johnny Chambers, embarks on a quest to save the world with her loyal best friend, Nick. The story is told through Nick's perspective. He is at once totally devoted to Johnny and yet resentful of her. Nick yearns for Johnny, not just romantically, but also because she is a symbol of privilege. He's angry that he, as an economically struggling Caribbean Indian, is not granted the same respect that wealthy white Johnny gets. Her life of privilege, like her love, seems unattainable for someone like Nick. However, When all hell breaks loose after one of Johnny's experiments unleashes horror on this world, Nick finds himself on a long, strange journey with Johnny to save the world. That's when he finds out that Johnny, the golden child he's always envied, has her burdens too. A bit about Primi Muhammad. She is an Indo-Caribbean scientist and speculative fiction author based in Edmonton, Alberta. Her short fiction has appeared in a variety of venues, including Analog, Escape Pod, Augur, and Nightmare Magazine. Her debut novel, Beneath the Rising, is out now from Solaris Books, with a sequel due out in 2021. She can be found on Twitter at Primasaurus and on her website at www.primimohamed.com. P-R-E-M-E-E-M-O-H-A-M-E-D. Premi is going to do a short reading, and then it's on to the questions. Even if it could be created, I don't want them to try, she said, hefting the circle in her hand. A dense brick of circuitry with gobs of clear epoxy on the edges, and a spherical cavity in the other. They'll have to settle for having me, if they can't have the reactor. And they can't have me, either. Says you. I know, but it might give you time to run. She took the brick to a fume hood in the corner and pressed buttons till the plastic cover came down and an open flame erupted from a spigot in the middle of the cabinet. The brick sputtered and caught, a greasy, tall fire drawn into a long streak from the fan. Her breath slowed while we watched it burn, not just shattered to bits, but eliminated from the world entirely. Not even the memory of its pattern remained now. I thought, why even tell me these things? Why draw me deeper? 
a child's bedtime story for a child you wanted to scare into insomnia, the story dug up from some unholy library book. I know those gods, now that you have named them. You are not the only one they know. Tentacles in board games. Books bound in human skin in jokey horror movies. Statues and a buzzing chant at the start of The Exorcist. But now you're telling me all that is based on something. As if the truth of their existence were the piece of grit inside a pearl, coated with years and years of denial and the deaths of witnesses until finally... All that was left was a palatable white surface that we could make movies and games about, write short stories about, without fear of repercussions from anything trapped so far down in the gem. So you say, knowing I have no way of contradicting your story, that I never have. And you think no one else in the whole world ever could reinvent that thing, I said. No one else could ever come up with it, no. You know what you've got, I said. A really healthy sense of self-esteem. Like we talked about in school. Like a battleship class ego. Thank you. She shut off the flame, and we watched the clouds of black smoke spiral up into the hood. Her face was still calculating. Joining us today, we have Premi Muhammad to discuss her debut novel, Beneath the Rising. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, you're quite welcome. So let's start our discussion about the book with the first question. Beneath the Rising is not a romantic book, but could we say it's a love story? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, it's, uh, we, we say it's still love if it's unrequited love. We say it's still love if you're not loved back. But in terms of literature, do we call that a love story. Um, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about it. I think it's the case for a lot of things that the narrator, Nick, really cares about. You know, he throws himself into things thinking it'll be worth it. Uh, he wants to be loved back. But I think one of the lessons of the book might be generally that it's uh, uh, the world is a hard place. It's not going to love you back. And uh, if that's the lesson, I'm not sure we can call it uh, a love story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he doesn't really get a lot of appreciation from his mother either. <laughs> well, uh, the tagline of the book is Hope Has a Price. Would you say Johnny is hopeful? And if so, what is she hoping for? You know, what I think is she very much hopes uh, to become a hero. And for anyone else, that would seem kind of uh, noble, I think. But for her, it's very much an ego thing. Um, she thinks, I think she thinks that if the world needs saving from, you know, uh, pollution, natural disasters, climate change, unsustainable ways of living, things like that, if the world needs saving, it should be by her because she really honestly thinks she's the most uh, qualified. She thinks she's the most special uh, an amazing person that's ever lived so i think what she hopes for is not just to save the world but to be noticed saving it and for people to point it out and i think that's possibly the point of saying it has a price the price is whatever she demands for it mm-hmm. yeah because i remember one passage vaguely i don't remember it verbatim but it did say uh it seemed to indicate that Nick thought Johnny had 
uh, higher expectation of the world, that she was more hopeful that people could change, that things could improve. But it's also true yeah. that she's very egotistical. <laughs> yeah, she is. And I think, and yeah, if you remember that part, that's a good catch. It's, uh, yeah, she, she thinks and hopes that with her guidance, the world can change and improve. And Nick is pretty sure, or his experience has told him that it can't and it won't. Mm-hmm. And they both have one thing in common. They both have problems trusting people. So what shared experience caused that and what other factors contributed to their isolation? Yeah, that's very true. That's true. Um, I guess uh, without getting too much uh, into spoiling things, they both really feel they've been kind of let down by, I think, their, their own expectations, these things that were supposed to be theirs. Uh, they both had some childhood trauma. Um, both their parents split up. They find themselves, I think, not trusting the adults in their lives. And uh, Johnny is very motivated to keep their friendship uh, kind of just to them and not allow any more people in it. And she, I think, I think part of the problem with that is that in the book, she feels that the more people she trusts, the more might get to know her secrets. And mm-hmm. she really does not want those known. She's very... Um, She's very guarded. She's surprisingly full of fear because she doesn't want people to know the truth about her. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, just an impromptu comment there. My dad used to have a T-shirt that said, I think it was a Linus T-shirt from uh, Charlie Brown Comics. I love I love mankind. It's just people I hate. And in a way, Johnny <laughs> wants to help mankind, but she has a lot of problems just in a just in the one personal relationship that she chooses to have. So uh, they're both at the cusp of adulthood, and they find themselves trying to save the world. Have adults failed them? Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, and and that's a good point. I think that may have been part of the point of the book. Um, When I started writing that book, I was 18. I was about Nick's age. Uh, I was in my second year of university, and what was happening was, you know, I'd, bear, I'd led kind of a sheltered existence, as the kids of immigrants often do. I had already become kind of disillusioned with the adults that I was meeting. You know, um, the, the way they seemed to take forever to do things, uh, make decisions the way they seemed limited and the way they wanted to limit me and everyone around them. And it's possible, honestly, that part of the book came out of um, – me wanting to write this idealized version of, of what I was seeing, um, you know, a world where you would be able to do things and the grown-ups wouldn't stop you kind of thing. So in the book, the first thing that Nick and Johnny think is, um, you know, we can't trust adults. Mm-hmm. They've already let us down. They've already shown us that uh, they won't take us seriously. If things need to be done, uh, we won't be believed. They, we may be stopped. We, we have to do our own thing because they'll, they'll mock us. They'll arrest us. They'll get in there our, our way. At the very least, they won't help us. And we can't let that happen because we don't have the time. Or at least that's how Johnny feels. And she may feel that way about Nick. We're not quite sure as we follow the novel because Nick himself has a different opinion about coming along on the quest he refers to himself as Johnny's lapdog. And at one point, he says he has no reason to be on that journey except as a pack mule. 
to quote an ancient image in a racist encyclopedia of a brown boy in a sugarcane field hefting a sack on his shoulders. Is he selling himself short? I mean, why would Johnny need or want Nick along specifically rather than her university-trained Ph.D. assistant, for example? Yeah, that's another major conflict in the book. And I think where that came from is Nick kind of looking at things the way I grew up looking at things, which is strictly uh, strictly transactional, strictly utilitarian. Um, Nick only sees himself in terms of the value that he can give to other people. Um, you know, he's, I think he's actually got a very low opinion mm-hmm. of himself. So when you say, is he selling himself short? He absolutely is. And he's going along uh, with what Johnny is saying. You know, he's, he's trusting what she's saying because he thinks, uh, wow, it would be, it would be great to be useful. It would be great that she invites me along. And he's, he's not suspicious because it's kind of about friendship, trust, you know, her, her assistant is an employee, and she likes him, She, but she hasn't told him everything about herself. She doesn't trust him with everything, um, you know, and Nick is, uh, Nick is her best friend. And so he's thinking in terms of trust. Uh, he thinks, who would you want to be with if you had to do something hard and scary? You know, would it be your best friend? Would it be, uh, you know, your husband or your wife or another family member, a sibling? Or would it be an employee or a coworker? So Nick really isn't as suspicious <laughs> as he should be. And I think on Johnny's side, she probably does recognize that strictly in terms of, you know, that transaction or that, uh, that utility, if she's just doing the math, it might be better to reveal all her secrets to her employee. But what she really wants is someone she can trust. And, mm-hmm. and a witness with her, the fewest witnesses possible, or the fewer people that know what she's up to possible, the, the single witness that she can trust to not help. So there's this tension with between kind of who can help and who will help and, uh, and who she trusts to help. Yeah, I think maybe at first he, he doesn't really, um, you know, question too much. He is very trusting at first, but then as the book goes on, he starts to see the gulf between them more and more. And of course, as he mm-hmm. begins to find out about her secrets, it uh, mm-hmm. breaks the trust between them. And uh, he does have a hard life in another way. Nick is a dark-skinned Indian Caribbean man. And this novel was written fairly soon after September 11th, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. You're Indian Caribbean as well. And you've written on your website sometimes about your background and uh, the confusion people have about your culture from the confusion that results from them being poorly informed. But in your case, rather than working in a grocery store shocking shelves, as Nick does, you have degrees in molecular biology and environmental science. So if Nick is a reflection of you, is not part of you and Johnny as well? Yeah, and uh, yeah, I really think it's uh, it's both of us. Like as I as I mentioned, I wrote the book in undergrad. I finished it when I was about twenty, so I was working on a science degree at that time, my genetics degree. But actually, I was also working at as a server at a restaurant. Uh, I worked as a barista. 
I swept floors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did dishes. I also stocked shelves because um, I did everything Nick did because I didn't have money for school. Um, my parents, bless them, uh, had set up um, an education fund for my brother, but they hadn't set up anything for me. And so to, um, and I didn't qualify for student loans because of how much money they made. So it was a choice of either working or not getting an education. So I picked working and uh, I didn't have any money for school. So I think both of them must be parts of me. And that's why I sympathize kind of with both of them. I sympathize with Nick for just trying to scrape out and feeling responsible, you know, as the older sibling. And uh, I'm, I'm the oldest in my family as well. And just this anxiety about, you know, this, this worry he feels about letting people down. And then I also felt like Johnny, there was, there were things I wanted to do in my undergrad, but you know, we were, we were kids, right? They, uh, mm-hmm. they wouldn't let us do them. They don't have unlimited resources. They don't have unlimited funds. They don't have unlimited professors and teachers and lab space. And I think, I think actually that's very common with young authors um, and, you know, deriving characters more from themselves than from the people they know necessarily, because, you know, at that age, at 20, uh, at 18, 20, you're, you're still very much trying to figure yourself out. And I think a lot of that probably goes into people's uh, fiction when they're mm-hmm. writing at that age. Well, talking about Johnny, she has enormous wealth, a stellar intellect and freedom, as well as being a beautiful blonde gay mind. So uh, I found it interesting. She wanted to use a gender neutral name, Johnny, rather than her given name, Joanna. Can you comment on that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, that's, that's a good question. So I haven't talked a lot about this, but there actually was a Johnny that I knew growing up and her real name was Joanna. So I just, I absolutely stole that completely from her. And if she's out there and listening to this, I hope she's doing well. But I had to come up with a reason for that in the text. Um, but in, in the book, basically, she, she doesn't like the name Joanna. She thinks it sounds like Goanna, a lizard. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's a family name given to her. So I think it's possible that as a character, um, it's, I think it's that ego thing again. She likes to choose. She doesn't like things given to her against her will. Um, so she doesn't like that name necessarily because it's a family name handed down. But um, the fact that her dad is the one that gives her that nickname and references a song, um, I think she uh, she likes that. And I think it suggests that she, she likes it as an alternative. I think it suggests that she loves and misses her parents more than she admits. Even though in this book she doesn't uh, she doesn't talk about them very much because she left home very young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she uh, set up her own shop, so to speak. I'll just tell you my mm-hmm. reaction to it because I thought it was interesting to me. Uh, what I thought you'd say, and these interviews are always fun because authors <laughs> don't say what you think they will, is that despite all the advantages that she's been given, that women still are taken less seriously than men in the world of geniuses and that's yeah. to me why she chose a gender neutral name yeah and that might be that might be part of it as well but she liked the more gender neutral name than joanna which is so clearly feminine mm-hmm. because she does comment in the book i think about how she isn't taken seriously because of those things because she's so young 
because she's so blonde, because she's so pretty. She seems to have all these advantages, but there's this one disadvantage that she feels she can't get rid of, which is being a girl. Exactly. And that is one reason she has to take Nick with her, because for our listeners, Nick and she end up traveling uh, through Morocco and Tunisia. And so having a dark-skinned man along with her means that she gets less grief from locals. <laughs> so you're a scientist yourself. Uh, which one of Johnny's inventions do you think could be the most possible? Mm, tough question. Uh, I would say really not the reactor, although funny story, one of the authors that blurbed it, uh, he contacted me afterwards and was like, oh, my God, so that reactor, could that work? It sounds really plausible. And I had to be like, no, 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 no. I really don't think it will. Not at all. One bit. Please don't try it. Like, please don't mm -hmm. blow up your house. Try it. <laughs> um, but truthfully, in the first book, I think the um, I think the, the biodegradable substitutes for plastic and styrofoam that she talks about are probably the most plausible because people have been working on uh, bioplastics and, and biostyrofoam and um, things like that for quite a while. But I think the, the most possible or the most plausible will be something that she talks about in the next book. Um, yeah, what she calls Molcon, or, or, or um, I can't remember what I substituted to you, but basically um, there are already people working on it. A way to break down waste and recyclables, including plastic, garbage, organic material, glass, whatever, back to its molecules for reprocessing and manufacturing so that new resources don't have to be extracted and refined. Because currently the limitations to recycling tech are uh, way too numerous to get into. But the main one with plastic is that once you process it too much, it becomes useless. Mm -hmm. So in the next book, uh, she says she gets around that and she's able to get around that with the uh, unlimited uh, cheap or free electricity from the reactor in the first book. Okay, so we would need, it's a possibility, but we would need even more electricity. We're also using a whole lot of keeping servers going, including one for the show, so <laughs> we're grateful for that. <laughs> so you've just alluded to the sequel. The sequel is called A Broken Darkness, or was at the last reading, and it's coming out in the spring of 2021. Do you have a publication date yet, a specific one? Uh, I think I was told March 3rd, 2021, uh, if everything works out and if nothing changes. So yeah, I'm quite excited about that. <laughs> okay. Do you want to tell us about that in one or two sentences? Blurb it or? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, God, I finished it and turned it in, uh, in May during the height of the pandemic while I was quarantining at home. So I hope my editor enjoyed slipping that into shape, but the, uh, the sequel starts with, uh, with Nick, you know, in a very, bad place he's traumatized um he's not he's lost his best friend basically they're not talking anymore the whole world actually is kind of in rough shape it doesn't know what happened at the end of the first book it can't explain it actually no one can explain it um but without getting into too much uh detail um nick has a new job now a good well-paying job that allows him to take care of his family which is his big priority now and he's working with some of the very adults that caused difficulties in the first book. Um, but to find out why, and I guess what to, what caused his change of heart, uh, people will have to wait till the book comes out. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the invite. You're welcome.
Thanks for listening to me today on a New Books Network in Fantasy and Adventure channel. I've been talking to Primi Muhammad about her debut novel, Beneath the Rising. Join me in October when I chat with author Mena van Prague about her dark fantasy, The Sisters Grimm, which concerns four magical sisters who must fight to survive their 18th birthdays. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, author of the YA fantasy Girl of Fire, the first in the Barona's Quest series. You'll find the podcast schedule on my website, gabriellematthew.com. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author. I know my name's a little unusual, so I'll spell it. It's G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. So I'm on Twitter at Gabrielle Author, and I hope you'll join me next time.